Inconvenient. Adjective. Causing trouble, difficulties, or discomfort. Truth. Noun. The quality or state of being true. When something causes us trouble, gives us difficulty, or produces discomfort, we avoid it. But what happens when we can't? What happens when those things come from our relationship with God? What happens when those things that are so inconvenient are also unavoidably true? This summer, we take a look at truths that we'd rather avoid. Truths about human dignity, sexuality, relationships, our work, and our money. This summer, we explore inconvenient truths. Amen. Kids ages three to, to five can head down to Holy Cross Kids Worship. Uh, the rest of you, I invite you to turn your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 7. If you don't have a Bible, the text is printed for you in your order of worship. It'll also be behind me. And if you don't own a Bible, there's uh, five or six on the back table. Those are yours. I want you to grab one. Uh, you can grab one. I mean, if, if you need more than one, yeah, I guess you can take it. But that's our gift to you. Go ahead and grab that. Um, Listen, if you're new to Holy Cross, you'll soon become familiar with the fact that we talk about Christianity uh, in very relational terms. It's not the only way to talk about the faith, but it's the way that we generally do. The the fact that we are alienated from God because we betrayed Him. Betrayal is a relational category. It's something that we... It's not just legal, it's, it's, it's familial. But Jesus came to restore our relationship with God. Now, here's the thing with relationships, and I, I would hope that most of us know this, right? Relationships challenge us. They push on us. If you're in a relationship with someone and it never challenges you, then you're not really in a relationship with someone. It's a farce. Like if you're never challenged by someone that you're in a relationship with, if, if something that they do doesn't irk you, if, if, um, if something you do doesn't irk them and kind of push on them, and there's a, then, then it's not really a relationship. Somebody's dead. It's just the way that works, whether literally or metaphorically. And this summer, we've been looking at those kind of inconvenient truths that push up against us when we're in a relationship with God. And this morning, after two weeks of dealing with marriage, uh, which uh, two weeks ago, uh, Joe Slater, who's the RUF pastor at James Madison University, came in uh, to cover for me while I was on vacation. And then last week, um, Jason Bailey, our, our new uh, shepherding director, he, he, he covered the pulpit as well. Um, just great. Thank you for that opportunity. Thank you. Uh, Jason's here. Joe, maybe he'll listen. Thanks, guys. I appreciate that. But this week, after two weeks of dealing with marriage, we come to the issue of singleness. Not something you often hear the church talk about. There's some reasons for that. Here, here's a truth. When dealing with any issue, we tend to have two polar opinions, right? And in this case, there's the traditional perspective, which we normally associate with religion of some sort, right? And then there's the contemporary perspective, which generally isn't. It's a little more secular, and, and singleness is no different. Traditional, the traditional perspective tends to denigrate singleness and say that, that um, you, you somehow are less than human unless you're married. And, and, the, and, and the, the contemporary culture seeks to deify it. Christianity, though, does something completely different. It reconceives of the whole thing. So if you have your place in 1 Corinthians 7, our, our habit here is to stand in honor of God's Word as it's read before the sermon. We're going to be reading verses 25 to 35 in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. 
before we do, let's be reminded, this is God's word. This is not something that we picked for ourselves or that the church decided a bunch of years ago, let's go with this instead of something else. This is God's word. It lays claim on us. And so let's hear it in that way. Now, concerning the betrothed, I have no command from the Lord, but I give my judgment as one who, by the Lord's mercy, is trustworthy. I think that in view of the present distress, it is good for a person to remain as he is. Are you bound to a wife? Do not seek to be free. Are you free from a wife? Do not seek a wife. But if you do marry, you've not sinned. And if a betrothed woman marries, she's not sinned. Yet those who marry will have worldly troubles, and I would spare you that. This is what I mean, brothers. The appointed time has grown very short. From now on, let those who have wives live as though they had none, and those who mourn as though they were not mourning, and those who rejoice as though they were not rejoicing, and those who buy as though they had no goods, and those who deal with the world as though they had no dealings with it. For the present form of this world is passing away. I want you to be free from anxieties. The unmarried man is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to please the Lord, but the, the married man is anxious about worldly things, how to, how to please his wife, and his interests are divided. And the unmarried or betrothed woman is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to be holy in body and spirit, but the married woman is anxious about worldly things, how to please her husband. I say this for your own benefit, not to lay any restraint upon you, but to promote good order and to secure your undivided devotion to the Lord. This is God's word given for our flourishing. Would you pray with me? Lord, you have called us into this place. You initiated relationship with us. We have responded to that call with the beauty of the gifts you've given us. We have heard your word read, and now we will sit under its explanation. We pray, Lord, that you would open our hearts to it. Holy Spirit, would you come and soften us? Open our ears that we might hear you. Open our eyes that we might see. And our minds that we might understand and our hearts to receive. Let Christ and his cross come to the fore. Let the one who speaks fall to the wayside, Lord. Because you alone hold the words of eternal life. And so we ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Have a seat. Last week, in kind of a passing comment, um, Jason Bailey mentioned during his sermon that cultural icon of the 90s, Friends, um, which is on Netflix now, in case you didn't know that. Anyway, that was, that was a show like another cultural icon, which I'm stunned he didn't mention, Seinfeld, uh, that in the 90s especially um, kind of struck against the typical sitcoms of the 70s and 80s. Right? Because the typical sitcoms of the 70s and 80s were focused on the family. A married couple with kids, you know, you've got all of their dysfunctions, certainly, but, but the family was the core feature. And in many ways, uh, these two shows kind of epitomized a new view towards relationships. Here were people with close friendships, right? Uh, sometimes romantically involved, who spent their days with a sense of freedom that seems absolutely unreal. Not to mention the fact that how does someone who works in a coffee shop have that size apartment? Right? It doesn't. In New York City, of all places. No. Okay, anyway. The point is that these two shows helped to shape, not only, but they, they helped to shape this new vision for the urban single, free, fulfilled, empowered which is markedly different from the image produced by traditional culture, right? It's, uh, traditional culture can be summed up. I had a, a friend who told me about a wedding he recently attended um, in which the, the person who was officiating the wedding 
And he told me this because he knew it would drive me nuts, and it did. The person who was officiating the wedding uh, not just implied, but explicitly stated that, that you aren't complete unless you're married. That you aren't actually fully human, in other words. You're not a full person until you got that other significant other kind of by your side. So which is it? Is true humanity found in a marriage relationship or not? Is real freedom and fulfillment found in singleness or not? Does traditional culture or contemporary culture win? What I'm hoping is that this text will show us a third way, right? So we're going to look at this text in a couple of ways. As always, there's an outline in your bulletin. That's helpful. We're going to look first at a new practice, and then we're going to look at a renewed context. And don't be um, too alarmed by all the subpoints. We'll, we'll get through them, trust me, okay? So here, here's the thing. We're going to look at this new practice in, in three ways. We're going to look at the principle, we're going to look at the premise, and we're going to look at the promise, okay? So let's, let's first start with the principle. Look down at verses 25 to 28. Paul says, Now, concerning the betrothed, or uh, some, of your, some of your translations say, Now, concerning virgins. Weird. All right, here, here's, here's, let's start there. Let's just start there. Here's what's going on. In 1 Corinthians, the Apostle Paul is writing a letter in response to a set of questions that he had received along with a report from a church that he had planted. Paul planted this church in Corinth, had moved on in his missionary journeys, and in the midst of this sometime during the early 50s, and by that I mean the 50s, not the 1950s, so in the, in the early 50s he's, he's, uh, he receives a report from, the, from probably some friends that he had helped plant the church with that were still there, and they were coming to him and they were telling him, look, we've got some issues and we have some questions, okay? And so he's reporting based on some of those questions. This is a new church trying to figure out what to do in regards to relationships in light of Jesus' work, Right? So, I know that that may sound a little strange to us. What, what does that necessarily mean? But here's what's probably going on. Some group in the church is asking what the finished work of Jesus does to our traditional categories of family. Does it make them obsolete? Does it kind of, since, since uh, you know, as Paul's going to say in a minute, the time is short, what, is, what does that do to things? So then, chapter 7 as a whole deals with people who are uh, Christians and married, right? Specifically uh, in regards to sex and, and not separating. Then it deals with people who are in a marriage in which only one partner is a Christian. It's a little later. And, then, and now, those who are not yet married. And so, Paul basically reiterates what he has already said. He said it in a couple places. He says, Look, it's best to remain where you are. Hard to hear. Best to remain where you are. Single, married, whatever. And verse 28 basically sums up this section. He said, look, if you get married, you're not sinning. If you remain single, you're not sinning. Okay? Now, that's kind of uncontroversial to us, right? Because no one would necessarily, even in this room, say, look, it's wrong. It's not. We would never say it's wrong to either get married or it's wrong to stay single. But we have to remember that Paul is speaking not to a 21st century culture primarily, but first and foremost to his first century culture. Because you see, in Paul's day, as in certain segments of our own day, family and childbearing was a central value. What I mean is this. In the, in the, the, the Mediterranean world of the Roman Empire, you had no value unless you were married and had children. But all of a sudden, though, Christianity comes on the scene and says that neither is right or wrong. That both are valid ways of life. And this would have been crazy. Look, uh, Caesar Augustus. He, one of the things that he put into place was that um, to kind of promote the growth of the empire, 
He actually levied penalties against women who had been widowed who were too slow in getting remarried. So they were like, it was like taxes, fines on, on women for not getting married fast enough. But in, in the early church, widowhood was highly respected. In fact, it was uh, materially supported by the church. And so now, the, the flip side of this, probably also going on in Corinth, is this notion that getting married in itself was probably not as spiritual as being a kind of uh, aesthetic, you know, someone who kind of restricts the body. Because, of course, you know, marriage is all about that S word, sexuality. In the Greek, in the Greek world, you either were like crazy on your sexuality or like it was bad and dirty and we don't ever do it. And so those kind of things are going on. And maybe it's not as spiritual to be married. And Paul is challenging both. He's saying that neither is more spiritual, neither more godly than another. To understand that, we've got to look at the premise. That's the principle. Here's the premise. Look down at verses 29 to 31. Paul says, this is what I mean. The, the appointed time is very short. From now on, let those who have wives live as though they have none. Now stop there. Now that's a little confusing, right? Because then he goes on to uh, let those who are mourning uh, act as though they're not. Those who are rejoicing act as though they're not. If you have money, pretend you don't have any anymore. You know, that kind of thing. Like, what, is he, what is he talking about? Uh, honestly, on the surface, it is hard to understand. That key for, the key in this is the phrase, the appointed time is short. Or uh, I think the ESV says very short. This is a notoriously difficult phrase to translate, but it's also a notoriously loaded phrase in Paul. Here's what, here's what Paul doesn't mean. He doesn't mean, if you have a wife, start acting like you don't. Right? It, it, that's, not, that's not what he's saying. He's not saying, like, you know, if, if, if you're sad, act like you're not. If you're happy, act like you're not happy. If you have money, don't act like you do. Right? Uh, that word appointed time is important. That word means, um, the appointed time, it means... Um, there's several different words for time in, in Greek. This one means uh, a season, an epoch, an age, a new thing, in other words. And that phrase brings with it the entire story that Paul simply assumed, one that we're probably not as familiar with. But here it is. Okay? God creates the world. He calls it good. And humanity is placed over that world to steward it. We're, we're put over God's world to, to steward it, to enact God's rule in it. And in that, we are made for a dependent relationship with him. In other words, we're not called to go do our own thing in our own power. We're, we're called to a dependent relationship, to look to him for our sense of reality, for our, for, for our life, our breath, for everything. But in time, we come to believe that we can and must be independent from him, because he's not to be trusted. And so we turn from him and betray him, and that's what the Bible calls sin. It's a betrayal of God. And that day, everything changed. The age changed. The epic changed. The season changed. The time. We became guilty, meaning we carry the weight of our betrayal of God, which ultimately leads to hell. We, we became broken, not just guilty, but also broken, meaning that by nature we're now bent away from God. That we're turned away from God by nature, not by nurture. In other words, it's not something we come to learn. It's something we are. And finally, we became alienated from, from God. We were, we were made for him, made to be dependent on him. But now, we want to be dependent on anything but him. But God promised that he would fix things. The betrayed one, 
The God that was betrayed looked on his betrayers and said, I'm going to make this right. I'm going to make this right between us. That he would reconcile us to himself. And this is why Jesus came. This is the whole story that led to the coming of Jesus. The gospel in which Paul is proclaiming that we were lost in guilt. And so he came to bear the penalty for our sin on the cross. That that we were lost in our brokenness. And so he came to to live the fully dependent life we were made for. and, And we were lost in our alienation. And so God, in Jesus, came, sought us out, and called us back to himself. And when Jesus died, and then rose again, everything changed again. A new epoch began. Here's why this matters. You see, traditional culture raises marriage and family to the level of identity, to the level of value. Contemporary culture raises freedom and autonomy to the level of identity and value. They become ultimate issues, in other words. They are those things that we look to that give us worth, value, hope. Christianity comes in and says that your identity and value are found in Jesus, not in whether you're married or single. So what Paul is not saying is if you have a spouse, act like you don't, or if you have money, act like you don't. He's saying Jesus has reconciled you to God, and so these things don't mean for you now what they once did. What they once meant was ultimate. Now they're simply what they were always meant to be. Good. If you are a Christian, he's saying, you've laid your faith, your hope, your life on Jesus. And so your value, your identity, your rightness is wrapped up in him and not whether or not you have a spouse. Paul can say, ultimately, that marriage, that neither marriage nor singleness is ultimate because the work of Jesus has marginalized them both. That is what he means when he says the present form of the world is passing away. He means what this world looks for, for its identity, for its value, what you looked for, what you looked towards to get those things, is on its way out. The gospel of Jesus transforms even how we look at relationships. So that's the principle and the premise. Now let's look at the purpose. Uh, Look down at verses 32 to 35. Paul says, I want you to be free from anxieties. The unmarried man is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to please the Lord. But the married man is anxious about worldly things, how to please his wife, and his interests are divided. Now that last phrase, interests are divided, doesn't mean like he's kind of double-minded. It means he's being pulled in two directions, right? He's being pulled in two directions. Here's what I want us to see about this. Did you notice what's absent? The unmarried person is concerned about the things of the Lord, the married person concerned about the things of their spouse and of the Lord, they're pulled in two directions. You notice what's absent? You. You. Paul lays out two possibilities. You could be unmarried and concerned about the things of the Lord, or you can be married and be concerned about the things of the Lord and your spouse and pulled in two directions. What he doesn't say is you can be unmarried and and looking out for you. Or that you can be married and and be married simply so you can get. He doesn't allow that. Here's why. Remember what I said a minute ago that one of the results of humanity's sin was our brokenness, right? That we're that by nature, not by nurture. Martin Luther, the the Protestant reformer, used to say that, that the result of that brokenness was that we have turned inside out. We've turned in on ourselves. Kind of sin has bent us in on ourselves. So, you see... Here's the way that works. As long as you think that you have to provide yourself a status before God, 
You have to be independent of Him, and you have to provide yourself a status before God. Or so long as you independently look for your own satisfaction, you will be driven to look out for number one. You're going to be driven to look out for yourself. Even those times in which you, you find yourself serving others, you're possibly, probably doing it. It's, it's about making you feel good or trying to cover over your failures or making up for your deficiencies. But if your status before God is wrapped up in Jesus, if he has taken your sin and you have been given his perfect status before God, you don't have to get your own. You don't have to look out for that part of you anymore. And if you've been reconciled to the God you were made for, then you don't have to keep searching to fill that hunger that only he can fill. Then you are turned, the New Testament would tell us, that in those moments you are turned right side out. You're able to live as, as we were meant to, to, to love God and others instead of constantly looking out for ourselves. So then the purpose of Christian singleness is not freedom for yourself, but freedom to be used for the kingdom of God. Joe uh, Slater said two weeks ago that one of the purposes of marriage is to illustrate the kingdom of God, to tell a story, right? Maybe you were here for that. You remember him telling the story, Christ and his church. In other words... Marriage isn't about you. You're married. I am. it's, It's not about you. It's not about your personal fulfillment. Marriage isn't about you. In the same way, singleness is not about you. Christianity claims value for singleness because it, like marriage, is simply a path of discipleship. It is simply a path of discipleship. Paths, they are both, marriage and singleness, paths of knowing Christ and showing him to the world. Now, that's our text. Let me bring this home to us in four ways, if I can. First, by talking of marginalizing. We've already kind of talked about that for a minute, but let's, let's press it home. What, the, make, what, what makes this text so countercultural to us today is the same thing that made it to Paul's first hearers. It marginalizes what we make ultimate. Look, many of us, and I don't care whether you're, you're young or older, married or single, whatever, we will often look to romantic relationships and we say, my life will be right if, right? My life will be right if I have a spouse. My life will be right if I don't have my spouse. My life will be right if I have that person's spouse. To this, Paul says, so long as you are looking to marriage or singleness for social stability, sexual fulfillment, emotional satisfaction, or personal wholeness, you will be disappointed. It will fail you. Always. If you hold on to these things as a single person and bring them with you into a marriage, you will crush your spouse. You will crush them. The only shoulders strong enough to bear the weight of your hopes and expectations are the ones that carried that cross up to Golgotha. He is the true spouse that you long for, whether you are married or single. But let me be clear. Saying this does not mean that if you come to Jesus, whether you are married or single, you will never struggle with loneliness or, with, or wrestle with feelings of dissatisfaction. Paul said that the present form, the schema, the scheme of this world is passing away, not that it already had. <laughs> Part of the faith, friends, is trusting that those things we long for when we say, my life will, be only, my life will only be right if... Part of the faith is when we have those things 
that we trust that those can only be found in Jesus. But not just that they can only be found in Jesus, but they will only fully be met when he returns to set the world and us to rights. In the meantime, the gospel marginalizes both marriage and singleness by removing it from that place of ultimacy, from that, from that place uh, from which we derive our value, worth, status, etc. And returns them to just being good, which is what they were always meant to be. Second, the text not only marginalizes singleness and by way of that also marriage, it also normalizes it. Okay? Now, for the first 1,500 years of the church, uh, the Christian church tended to over-evaluate singleness, right? The, the truly spiritual people are the ones who have eschewed marriage and live only devoted to the Lord. Uh, and, and, and the Protestant reformers kind of came on the scene and said, that's crazy. And then in typical human form, when they said that in the 16th century, when they, when they pointed out how, how silly that is and called out Roman Catholicism for requiring clergy to be single... In truly human form, we took one extreme and we swung it over to the other. And then we began saying that you can't actually be really spiritual, really mature, really godly, unless you're married. This text makes something clear that we need to say loudly. There is nothing wrong with being single. Okay? Not having a spouse in some quarters of the church is akin to having leprosy. You think I'm kidding, but I'm not. For some reason, we assume that there must be something wrong with a man or a woman who's an adult in their 30s or 40s or 50s and doesn't have a spouse. That, or, or, or even worse is we think that they, they can't possibly be spiritually mature. There is nothing wrong with that. Like, there's nothing wrong with being single. One of the amazing aspects of the early church was that it made the primary basis for relationship, not your blood relations, not your, your marriage relationship, but the community of faith. Where is it that we are to find family in the church? Here. Family. The family of God. We are all brothers and sisters, all fathers and mothers to one another. So singleness is a valid calling of God on people's lives and for, on all of our lives. Right? Everyone in this room has been single. Right? So it, it is a calling of God on our lives for some of us, for a time, for other of us, for our whole lives, and it is worthy of respect. So if you are married in this room this morning, can I ask a favor? Please stop treating single folks with a poorly veiled pity. And please stop thinking you have to set them up with someone for them to be happy. You don't. Instead, married couples, why not bring single brothers and sisters into your home? Why not invite them to be part of your family? Because you know what? They are. They are complete people with lives. Lives that Jesus is using. Faith that Jesus is using and could use in your life to help you grow as well. One more thing on this, though. There is a myth that we can believe that says, if God is calling us to singleness, and Paul does say it's a calling. He says that earlier in this letter. If, if, if God is calling us to singleness, we will never struggle with loneliness, or we will never desire for a spouse. That is crazy. That is crazy. Listen, every married person in this room struggles with loneliness. Every one of us. 
And like I said, some of us have desires for a different spouse. It may be that God has crafted some to be single who never deal with loneliness, who never deal with a desire for a spouse. It may be that God crafted them that way. It's equally possible that, pe- that, that people like that don't, don't deal with their loneliness. Or that, that folks who, who don't have feelings of loneliness or, or, or desire for a spouse, that they're not somehow super spiritual. They could have a personality disorder. I mean, let's be honest. Just because you don't deal with that doesn't mean God wired you that way. Don't assume. Singleness is is a path of discipleship, which means it will be a means of sanctification by calling you to bring those longings to Christ, looking to him in dependence to meet them, and trusting that he will provide what you need, even if it isn't necessarily what you want. All right. That's marginalizing and normalizing. Let's talk about utilizing. Utilizing your singleness. This one is rather simple, but needs to be said. Christians are those who have been saved from the the penalty of sin, right? We've We've been saved from the penalty and power of sin by the work of Jesus alone. And so we've been saved from certain things. We are also those who have been saved for certain things. Though we have been saved for a life turned outwards towards God and others. And so we need to think Christianly about the season of life that we're in. Is that season childhood? Then God is calling you to use it to bless others. Is it being a student? God's calling you to use your studenthood to be a blessing to other people. Is it marriage? We're to use our marriage for the flourishing of others. Is it singleness? You guessed it. It's to be for others. So, folks in this room who, who are single, how are you using your singleness? Because let's be honest, if you're single here this morning, you probably have a lot more freedom than those who are married with multiple kids, right? How are you using that to serve others? Just as much as a married couple is to tell forth the gospel in how they love and serve one another and put that on display for others... So as a single Christian, we tell the gospel by showing how Jesus has turned us outward towards serving others instead of satisfying ourselves. How are you using your singleness? How are you utilizing it? Lastly, so that's marginalizing, normalizing, utilizing. Let's keep the Isings going. Uh, Let's talk about strategizing. And by this, here's what I mean. I mean addressing the question. Okay, Rick, I get all that. But what if I'm single and don't want to be? Listen, none of what I have said today is meant to negate or attempt to lessen what any of us struggle with. All of us, all of us deal with unmet longings. And those longings are real and difficult. We struggle. So let me just say a few things about how to engage in looking for a spouse and working through that process. You see, one of the the amazing things about this passage that Paul does... And it's what, what's going on there at the beginning when he says, look, as far as unmarried folks, I've, I've got no command from the Lord. What he means is not, I haven't heard anything from the Holy Spirit on this today, so I'm just going to make this up. What he's talking about is, there are other times, like in the section where he's dealing with um, staying married to your spouse, where he literally quotes something that Jesus said, right? Probably had access to the Gospels, had access to that tradition. He said, look, Jesus said this. But on this, we have Jesus not, we have nothing in our Gospels that Jesus ever said anything on this. And so what Paul is doing, he's saying, look, 
what we're going to do is we're going to have to think Christianly about these things. And he's trying to teach the Corinthians to think Christianly. And so that's the same thing that we're doing here. We need to think Christianly, to think biblically about these things. These are matters of wisdom, but they are informed by the Bible. So let me give, um, let me give three little ways to, uh, to engage in this. First, standards. Scriptures are very clear on this one, that Christians are to seek to be married only to other Christians. And so it is best, if you are uh, a single Christian here this morning, not to open yourself to deeply intimate relationships with unbelievers. Now, if you're married and become a Christian, right, and your spouse is not, that's a different story. Paul has some other things to say about that. But if you are single and a a Christian, you are only to marry in the Lord. Um, And Paul says that in this very chapter, in verse 39. In this, though, that's only one part of it. At the same time, in terms of standards, make sure that your attraction is comprehensive. What I mean is that our culture tells us that um, if you're a dude, you're supposed to find a spouse based on looks. And if you're a, a woman, you're supposed to find a spouse based on stability. Right? Income. Money. Can this person take care of me? Is, am I going to be okay? Am I going to be able to live my lifestyle? Da, 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 da. And, and for all of our liberation, that's still what's at the, at the forefront. But the gospel would have us look not at those things, but at someone's character. Here's why. Some of us are getting to know this rather intimately in this stage of our life. Appearance fades. Money can be gone like that. Character remains. Characters forever. Let your... Let your, uh, make, your, make sure your attraction is comprehensive, okay? Secondly, trust. I know this is hard for, for most of us to believe, married or not, but God is sovereign over your love life. You don't have to jump quickly in the boat and romanticize things quickly. Take time to get to know the person in other contexts, maybe in your small group or, or in social gatherings, etc. Look, I'm not saying to kiss dating goodbye. That's, that's, that was a very popular book about 20 years ago. It's just unreasonable, okay? It's a nice idea. It's just rather unrealistic. What I am saying is you can learn a lot about someone from these other contexts and are less likely to jump the gun because of thinking you have to act fast before someone changes their mind. God is sovereign, and he is worthy of your trust. Lastly, uh, this is the harder one. That's community. What I would say is this. The, the scripture calls us to submit ourselves to one another, right? And so submit yourself to the input of those around you whom you trust. You may not be seen clearly on things. None of us see clearly on everything. And those you are close with may be able to help you. Lean on them, especially those you are close with who are married, who might see things like, in a marriage, that's going to not be helpful, and can, can help point some of those things out, okay? One caveat to that in regards to sexuality. It should go without saying, but it can't. I noted this a few weeks ago. Some of you weren't here, and that's fine. Uh, but I, the scriptures are very clear that sexuality outside of marriage is simply out of the question for those who are seeking to walk with Jesus. Just out of the question. If you have questions on that, you can hit, hit the website and, and listen to that sermon, or you can come talk to me. But uh, that's just a caveat. I would, I would tell you this. Think more of how you can honor the one you are interested in and less in how you can use them. Now, Let me conclude. I know that I have not answered every question. And frankly, there are some questions that simply cannot be answered. Some of us 
here are married and wish we weren't. Others of us are here and aren't married and wish we were, we long to be. Why are we where we are? I don't know. That is your story and not mine, and I am no expert in the story of others. Only God is. Here's what I do know. Both marriage that we've talked about for two weeks and singleness that we've talked about this week are stages. And I don't mean like a stage that you come to and then you go to another stage. I mean stages, like a stage. They are places where we put the gospel on display. Both marriage and singleness are normative for Christians. Normative. And neither, listen to me, neither one is about your personal fulfillment. The gospel tells us that such fulfillment cannot be found in an institution because our problem is so much greater. Because we are far more broken than that. But it also tells us that God has purely by his grace met our need in Jesus. So that when we come to him by faith, we can be released to use our platform, to use our stage to put Christ on display for the world. Would you pray with me? Lord, thank you that you build your church full of different kinds of people. Married, single, with children, without, old, young, black, white, rich, poor. You put a beautiful mosaic on display. And that, in fact, it's not just on display, but you, you put your church together because we need one another. People who are married need their single friends. And those who are single need their married friends. And those who are older need their younger friends and vice versa. We, we need one another. And so, Lord, I ask that at Holy Cross, you would build a community that lives into that mutual need, that lives into that mutual honor, giving honor to our brothers and sisters no matter what stage of, in their life they are in, what season they are in. I pray that you would do this, Lord, because the gospel has so dug into our hearts that it has marginalized everything except the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. That that be the place that we go to get our value, our worth, and our hope. As you do that, Lord, we're going to give you praise, and as you do that, our our city will take notice. Because what other community could be like that except a community set free by the God we were made for? We pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen.